Today on Golden Girls Sports, we hit the links with a couple of golf icons. One, a comedian obsessed with a sport, and the other, a pure athlete with the gifts of a showman. I apologize in advance for my terrible Bob Hope impersonation. Marcus Allen. Mike Tyson. Extra innings. The tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson. Bobby. Oh, Tampa Bay Bucks. And they're off! The pig takes the lead. The chicken... You Gotta Have Hope premiered on February 25th, 1989. The 17th episode of the show's fourth season, it was written by Barry Finero and Mort Nathan. The girls are tasked with organizing a community talent show for their ladies' auxiliary group, but finding actual talent turns out to be a challenge, even with Sophia acting as an agent for two acts, the melodious Donatello triplets and Sophia's 90-something-year-old magician boyfriend, the great Alfonso. When their MC bails on them, Rose has a solution. She'll just ask Bob Hope, who she believes is her actual birth father, to host the show. Somehow, Dorothy and Blanche are unconvinced that she can actually pull this off. But once Rose opens her mouth to the entire ladies' auxiliary about it, the girls have to produce Bob Hope, or else they'll be humiliated. Fortunately, the man himself is playing at a golf tournament in Miami that very weekend. So the girls go undercover in drag and sneak into the country club, hoping to come face-to-face with Mr. Bob Hope. While Rose is optimistic and Blanche is intimately familiar with the layout of the locker room, Dorothy doesn't see the point in their disguises. Uh, This is so weird. I've never been in a men's locker room before. Neither have I. I really like the new carpet. They... (laughs) Me neither. This is ridiculous. This is never going to work. Now listen. The caddy said Mr. Hope just finished his round of golf. He's got to be in here somewhere. Well, what if he is? I mean, he's not about to do a favor for three people who look like Sam Sneed with a hormone problem. Sadly, the golf course gambit fails, and Rose faces the reality that her long-held fantasy has gotten out of hand. The night of the show, all hope seems lost, but who shows up on stage after all? Bob Hope who it turns out used to be a vaudeville partner of Sophia's magician boyfriend. He might not be Rose's birth father, but he showed up when she needed him just the same. Bob Hope ended up on the Golden Girls exactly how you might have expected he would have. He got a phone call from Betty White. The writers and producers had wanted an episode where Rose revealed that she had been adopted as a child and fantasized that a celebrity was her real father. The problem was finding and casting a celebrity that fit the proper age profile. White and Hope were friends, and so she asked him if he'd do the show, and without a second thought, he said he'd love to. The salary for his appearance? A bunch of jokes, courtesy of the Golden Girls crack writing staff, for him to use at that year's Bob Hope Desert Classic Golf Tournament, which we'll talk much more about in a few minutes. Incidentally, in season six's Once in St. Olaf, Rose's father was revealed to have been a monk from a monastery near her hometown, who was played by Cocoon and Trading Places star Don Amici. Bob Hope's connection to sports started before his nearly eight-decade-long career in entertainment even began. His family emigrated from England to Cleveland, Ohio, when he was just four years old, and he was still known by his given name, Leslie. As a young man, Hope was an amateur boxer for a few bouts in 1919, fighting under the ring name Packy East, and while he was performing songs and doing impressions on the streets, he was also hustling at pool tables. 
Soon it was on to dancing lessons, and then on to vaudeville, where he performed either in teams or as a proto-stand-up comedian for years. At some point, he began going by Bob so that he could seem just like one of the guys to audiences. But it was his talent, hard work, and a mastery of the one-line joke that really propelled him. In just the 1930s, he starred in Broadway musicals, broke into radio with his own weekly show, and then moved into the movies with his first big film literally called The Big Broadcast of 1938. In that film, he first sang Thanks for the Memory, which would be his signature sign-off song for the rest of his career. That classic, of course, was later reworked on the Golden Girls Sophia style into Thanks for the Medicare. Thanks for the Medicare. <laughs> for Blue Cross and Blue Shield. For a hip that finally healed. Remember on prescriptions, generic is a steal. We thank you so much. From 1941 to 1953, Hope was one of the country's biggest box office stars, mainly due to the series of road movies he made with actress Dorothy L'Amour and golf buddy Bing Crosby. Come on, take it easy, take it easy. So long, sister, and if we don't get in touch with you, it's nothing personal. It's just that we're prejudiced against dying young. He's right, Scat. This is my problem. Hold it. Now, wait. Look, pal, this gal's in a lot of trouble, and you got to help her, like any guy would with red blood in his veins. Yeah, well, I got news for you. I'm anemic. She stays with us. <laughs> Nothing doing. If you think I'm going to let a beautiful doll like this live in the same apartment that I'm living in, if you think... If you... If... Yes, hot and lips. I'll give you just 72 hours to get out of here. Grand, grand. Now we're promoting. Well, come on. What are we waiting for? Let's live a little. Well, I'd like to if you'd only let me. Hope also starred in tons of other legendary films like Pale Face, Lemon Drop Kid, and The Ghost Breakers, which was later an influence on Ghostbusters. He would add a weekly TV show to his radio and movie work, and when he wasn't doing all of that, he could be seen hosting the Oscars, hosting Christmas specials, popping up at charity events, and making cameo appearances everywhere. Mixed within all of that was Hope's long-standing commitment to the troops. His USO tours to benefit the armed forces started in May of 1941, seven months before the U.S. even entered World War II. He performed through four wars, up to and including the Persian Gulf, covering millions of miles across the globe and entertaining tens of millions of service members. No war, no problem. Unlike many contemporaries, Hope toured bases even in peacetime. In his obituary of Hope, New York Times film critic Vincent Canby wrote that during Vietnam, the showman performed to the sons of the servicemen he had entertained during World War II and the Korean War. Each branch of the military awarded Hope a Distinguished Service Medal, and he was given awards by presidents from FDR to Bill Clinton for everything he had done for the country throughout his career. When Hope died at the age of 100 in 2003, President George W. Bush had American flags flown at half-staff. Hope's support of the increasingly unpopular war in Vietnam damaged his reputation among many back home. He even described himself as, quote, hawkish, and the United States as, quote, the big daddy of this world, as he told reporters he hoped for a decisive U.S. victory. But for active soldiers looking for a few laughs in between bombings, the two hours spent with Bob Hope and some of his celebrity friends made a world of difference. There was one other place Bob Hope was known to put on a lot of performances— the golf course, and his love affair with the game helped it gain a lot of the mainstream popularity that it still holds. Hope first experienced golf in 1930, tagging along to courses with other vaudeville stars between shows. In 1932, 
He and Bing Crosby would spend time driving balls underneath the Queensboro Bridge in New York and playing in charity games. Hope made lots of jokes at his own expense about how bad a golfer he was, but he continued to hone his game obsessively, even having a four-bunker hole constructed behind the Palm Springs home he shared with Dolores, his wife of 60 years. With some training from none other than Ben Hogan, he got his game down to a four handicap and played in the 1951 British Amateur. He took his golf association to a new level in the mid-60s, agreeing to attach his name to the Palm Springs Desert Classic Tournament, which would act as a counter to Bing Crosby's long-running tournament in Pebble Beach. Hope and Arnold Palmer won the Pro-Am portion of the Desert Classic in 1962, but once it officially became the Bob Hope Classic in 1965, Palm Springs was the place to find the best of golf and Hollywood mingling together on four separate courses over five days every year. The event would kick off with a huge party at the Hope's house, and the big draw was seeing celebrities like Burt Lancaster, Kirk Douglas, Desi Arnaz, and Frank Sinatra mixing with pros like Jack Nicholas, Sam Sneed, Gary Player, Johnny Miller, and Palmer, who won the thing five times. Golf.com has a short photo gallery with some other Hope Classic amateurs like Jack Lemmon, Jackie Gleason, Johnny Mathis, and Sammy Davis Jr., as well as a truly terrifying golf cart with a fiberglass facsimile of Hope's nose and chin jutting out from the front. The caption on Davis's photo might be the perfect distillation of the textbook Bob Hope golf joke. Sammy hits a nice ball, about 90 yards, but his jewelry flies 110. Hope played golf with every president going back to Dwight Eisenhower, who was the first ex-commander-in-chief to play in the Hope Classic. Gerald Ford was not only a playing partner, but the butt of many jokes due to his propensity for shots that went all over the place. You all know Jerry Ford, the most dangerous driver since Ben Hur, is just one example. In addition to drawing all kinds of spectators to golf, thanks to a broadcasting deal with its namesake's longtime home network of NBC, the Bob Hope Classic also raised enough money to build an entire hospital. The Eisenhower Medical Center was built on 80 acres of land donated by Bob and Dolores and on funds drawn from the tournament. According to the World Golf Hall of Fame, in which Hope was inducted in 1983, the Hope Classic has raised over $52 million. The majority of that went to the hospital for which Dolores served as president for years. Another 70 charities have also received funds courtesy of the tournament. Hope authored 10 books in his life, and one, 1985's Confessions of a Hooker, is all about his love for golf. Even after Hope's death, the tournament continued to be named in his honor and continued to draw celebrities like Don Cheadle, Kurt Russell, and Samuel L. Jackson. It was renamed the Bob Hope Chrysler Classic in the mid-2000s before becoming the Career Builder Challenge in 2012. Hope's sports dedication didn't stop at golf, though. He was a part owner of the Cleveland Indians starting in 1946, and he tried to buy the Washington Senators in 1968, but was outbid for the then-American League expansion team. He was a member of the Rams' front office the first time they played in Los Angeles and either tried to buy the club outright or just owned a small piece of it. It's amazing that with all of his show business responsibilities, charity work, businesses, and God knows what else, Bob Hope even had time to not only enjoy sports, but to take such a hands-on approach to them. Sometimes it even happened by accident. In 1978, Hope and Jimmy Stewart were guests on the Mike Douglas Show. And on that chat show that night was a two-year-old golfer and his father. The kid hit balls around, paying little attention to the super-famous men on stage with him. Douglas wanted the kid and Hope to have a putting contest, and Hope jokingly asked the kid if he wanted to wager some money on it. It's a cute bit you can watch on YouTube right now. The father of that tiny golfer was named Earl Woods, and the little kid on the putting green with Bob Hope 
was his son, Tiger. There was another yearly Bob Hope sports tradition. On his annual NBC Christmas specials, Hope introduced that year's All-American college football players as voted on by the Associated Press. He would poke gentle fun at these often very large and very fast men, many of whom went on to careers in NFL or pro wrestling. Those All-American teams also came up on the Golden Girls. In Season 4's Scared Straight, written by Christopher Lloyd, Sophia tells Dorothy about a dream she had that she thinks is very meaningful. Dorothy's not impressed, though. I'm sitting in the living room, and the clock strikes nine. Then the bell rings. It's your father and his fedora. He always wore a fedora on Saturday. He walks towards me, reaches out his hand, and says, Sophia, you can come now. There's room for you now. That's it? You want them to show up with Barbara Eden and the College All-American football team? (laughs) It's a dream, not a Bob Hope special. Sophia's dream turns out to be just her friend Mildred asking her to go bowling. It's a long story. We'll talk more about that in a later episode. Pioneering sports blog The Classical has a few retrospectives on the All-American team segments from various years and some of the best lines Hope used in the introductions. In 1989, he said of Notre Dame kick returner slash wide receiver Rajib Rocket Ishmael that, quote, he runs so fast his uniform has trouble keeping up with him. NFL stars like Bo Jackson, Emmett Smith, Lawrence Taylor, and Bruce Smith all got similar treatment. Sam Snead did as much to popularize golf among the American public as Bob Hope did. The difference, of course, is that Snead was also one of the most outstanding players in PGA history. He owns a tour-record 82 victories, including three Masters, three PGA Championships, and one British Open. For nearly 50 years, Snead was a prolific and perpetual winner in events big and small. He won eight tournaments in 1938 alone, 11 in 1950, and took first place at the Bing Crosby program 17 times. He played in eight Ryder Cups, serving as captain in 1959 and 1969. His final major win was in 1954, when he beat rival Ben Hogan in an 18-hole playoff at the Masters. Then it was on to the Senior Tour and almost a dozen more wins throughout the 60s and 70s. He would have had even more victories had the PGA not changed the rules in the early 80s to alter what did and didn't qualify as an official event. For a while, his British Open win didn't count because the prize money was deemed too low. But a few years before his death, the PGA reinstated Snead's 1946 victory at St. Andrews, giving him back one of his majors. His son Jack estimates Sam's real haul to be 94 tour wins. Tiger Woods is the current leader with 79 career PGA victories and is the only player right now within shouting distance of Slam and Sammy. The only major to elude Snead was the U.S. Open, where he finished second four times and sometimes lost in heartbreaking fashion. He went from first to fifth thanks to a triple bogey on the final hole of the 1939 Open. And in 1947, he missed a 30-inch putt on the last hole of a playoff to lose to Lou Worsham. But the many, many wins and occasionally dramatic losses helped to build Snead a beloved public profile. Writing in Sports Illustrated about Snead's attempt to win the 1956 Masters, celebrated golf scribe Herbert Warren Wind summarized the golfer's cross-cultural charm. Quote, His appeal extends to every type of golf fan. Wherever he plays, he is followed by not only the most sedate pillars of the host club, but also by the pool room crowd, who adopt him as their guy and root as pugnaciously for him as they would if they were spurring on a hard-pressed Marciano. End quote. As a naturally athletic kid in his hometown of Hot Springs, Virginia, Sneed learned to golf playing barefoot 
and with clubs whittled out of swamp maple. He never quite lost that homespun demeanor, even playing barefoot for a few holes during the 1942 Masters. At the 1949 Masters, he became the first man to be awarded the tournament's prestigious green jacket. Sneed's trademarks included his smooth Appalachian accent, his jaunty hats, the type the Golden Girls were wearing for their disguises, prompting Dorothy's comparisons to him, and his sweet yet powerful swing that earned him his nickname, The Slammer. Here's Wind again, quote, The first driver in the game's long history who was both very long and very straight, Sam possesses a swing of such beauty that a person who knows nothing about golf can recognize at once that he is watching something as functionally and artistically right as the motions of an Astaire or a Toscanini, end quote. That whole article is fascinating. Uh, Herb Wind was as important to golf as Sam Snead or Bob Hope. Uh, you could read it at the SI Vault. In 1960, Sam Snead appeared on a TV show called Celebrity Golf. Each week, he would play against an actor, comedian, or a singer with money for charity on the line and with host Harry Zell doing running commentary. Guests included Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis, Perry Como, James Garner, Harpo Marx, still silent and with trademark Harpo Marx wig and top hat, and of course, Bob Hope. You could watch these on Golf Channel or on YouTube. At 52 years old, Sam Snead became, and still is, the oldest player to win a PGA event, taking the 1965 Greater Greensboro Open. He's also the only man credited with a victory on an LPGA event, winning the Royal Ponciana Plaza Invitational in 1962 and beating 14 LPGA golfers in a two-day event at the Palm Springs Par 3 Golf Club. Sam Snead passed away in 2002, a few days short of his 90th birthday. But his name will live on forever, not only because of the PGA record book or the series of resort restaurants across the country that bear his name, but because he'll always be one of golf's most relatable champions. We're not done with You Gotta Have Hope just yet. The great Alfonso, Sophia's magician boyfriend, who was once vaudeville partners with Bob Hope, was played by British actor Douglas Seale, who had a decades-long career in the theater as an actor, producer, and director in England and the U.S. He went back to TV in the 80s, specializing in playing old English guys, and appearing in Amazing Stories, Scarecrow and Mrs. King, Growing Pains, a one-season show called Rags to Riches, and a second episode of The Golden Girls, in which he made a semi-sports-related joke. In season five's Twice in a Lifetime, written by Robert Bruce and Martin Weiss, Sophia decides to move out and live a more independent life like her wild friends. Seal plays her new roommate, a man named Malcolm, whose eyes ain't what they used to be. Bye, Ma. Ma? You must be Tommy's boy. How's the team look this year? Being mistaken for a man wasn't something that sat well with B. Arthur over the course of the series. Especially during the early days, jokes aimed at Dorothy's looks were as frequent as jokes about Rose being dumb, Sophia being old, or Blanche sleeping around. The difference, according to writer David A. Goodman, was that, quote, obviously it's the character of Rose who is stupid, of Sophia who's senile, of Blanche who's a slut, and those are the types of jokes you'd write for those characters. But in the first couple of years, there were jokes about how big and ugly Dorothy was. B started to feel very insecure about it, and so writers had to take those jokes out of their scripts. As a young writer, this was a very good lesson to learn. End quote. One joke in season four's Love Me Tender about Dorothy's supposed resemblance to Beverly Hillbilly's actor Buddy Ebsen made Arthur cry at the table read. 
and tell producers and writing staff that they had, quote, been calling me a man for 70 episodes now. Writer Richard Vassy says that Arthur was ready to quit the show over it. Fortunately for all of us, she did not. She was nominated for an Emmy for that episode. Eventually, Arthur was given episodes that highlighted Dorothy's desirability, and she was able to have relationships with characters played by Jerry Orbach, Hal Linden, and Dick Van Dyke. Of course, in the series finale, Dorothy found love with Blanche's Uncle Lucas, played by Leslie Nielsen. But even with all the jokes at her expense, Dorothy did go out on her share of dates, and because the girls lived in Miami, a few of them were golf dates. On the fifth episode of season one, called The Triangle, and written by Winifred Hervey, Dorothy begins a relationship with the dashing Dr. Elliot Clayton, played by TV veteran Peter Hansen. Unfortunately, the urbane Dr. Clayton turns out to be a real piece of garbage and makes a pass at Blanche while Dorothy is out of the room. Blanche comes clean, but a betrayed Dorothy doesn't believe her and decides to move out. When Dr. Clayton comes by the house to pick up Dorothy for a golf date, it's Rose who blows up his game. Rose, honey, can I borrow your golf gloves? I already packed mine. Only if you promise not to move out. I cannot promise that. Then putt with bare hands. (laughs) Hi. Ready to go? Soon as Rose lends me some gloves. They're in the bottom drawer on the left, not under my clarinet. (laughs) Be right back. Want to see some Polaroids of me in my tennis skirt? Look, Rose, I'm, I'm flattered, and please, no offense, but you're, you're just not my type. But Blanche was. That never happened. Oh, yes, it did. Blanche told me all about it. She made it up. I don't think so. Look, nothing came of it. I did apologize to her. And you lied to me. Dorothy. You lied to me about Blanche. Dorothy, sweetheart, please try to understand. It was no big deal. Oh, you think so? I probably lost one of my best friends because of you. To me, that's a very big deal. I take it we're not playing golf. We are not playing anything anymore. Man, imagine being outsmarted by Rose. In season three's And Ma Makes Three, also written by Hervey, Dorothy is now going out with a fella named Raymond. The problem is that Sophia, distraught over a friend moving to Chicago, has ingratiated herself in their relationship, including tagging along on their golf dates. Uh, that's what I wanted to talk to you about. Ma's been feeling a little down lately, so I invited her to play golf with us. Oh, wonderful. Uh, glad to have you along, Sophia. I know. So, uh, Sophia, tell me, uh, have you played much? Have I played? Have I played? Have I played what? (laughs) Raymond was played by actor James Caron, who still continues to work today at the age of 94. His first TV credit was in A Christmas Carol on the Philco Goodyear Television Playhouse in 1948, and he's worked on Broadway, movies, and mostly TV ever since. He plays a lot of lawyers, doctors, judges, politicians, admirals, that sort of thing. His two best-known roles might be as Craig T. Nelson's boss, and friendly neighborhood Indian burial ground repurposer in Poltergeist, and for the decades he spent doing TV commercials for Pathmark supermarkets. Look for this circular in Sunday's paper for super coupon bonanza savings like these. A half-gallon Tropicana orange juice, $1.39. A dozen Pathmark large eggs, 69 cents. And a half-gallon of Pathmark premium ice cream, $1.39. Come to Pathmark Super Coupon Bonanza, where you're the one who's number one 24 hours a day. Pathmark Super Coupon Bonanza. 
it's still weird to me to see him act in an actual role after seeing him in those ads for most of my life. Personally, I can't hear his voice without immediately thinking about super coupon savings on cans of Del Monte vegetables. You Gotta Have Hope is a pretty funny episode. It's got a couple of songs by the Del Rio triplets who were famous for doing goofy acoustic covers of popular songs from the 80s, and Bob Hope's cameo is well done. In the interviews in Golden Girls Forever, it's clear the producers and crew were excited to have him on set, and that he was a big get for a show that was already one of the most popular on television at the time. I love the idea that Betty White just called him up and asked if he'd be on the show, the way we assume all TV legends communicate. It's difficult to sum up Bob Hope or Betty White, as we've already seen, as just actors the way it is just to call Sam Snead a golfer. It might be true, but it barely scratches the surface of their impact on pop culture. I feel lucky to have grown up when I did so that I could experience even a relatively small amount of their careers before they became grainy, disjointed clips on YouTube. Next time on Golden Girls Sports, it's another feature episode. We'll take a look at the varied career of Miss Rue McClanahan as Blanche Devereaux teaches a young ball player about life, love, and lingerie. Golden Girls Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saracini. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version, by Josh Woodward, and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit goldengirlsportspodcast.com for show notes and references, and follow us on Twitter at Golden Girls SP. Thanks for listening.